Turn with me to Acts chapter 8, as we will be looking at verses 4 through 25 this morning. Acts chapter 8, it's going to be concerning a man by the name of Simon, who this brief story here in the book of Acts has caused lots of controversy and even church history, and so we'll be looking at that. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to this text, we pray that we would see it with fresh eyes, that we would see it with hearts and minds that want only to glorify You and see our own sin in it as well. Oftentimes it's easy to to point when... Really, it's looking right back at us. And so, Lord, help us to see our own sin, that we might be convicted of it, that we might grow closer to you. Teach us here from your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I read this passage, it really made me think of these sidev and posters and um, people who are kind of masquerading made me think of the movie Catch Me If You Can. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It's really, really good. Um, it's older now, but it was newer. Uh, this, a man by the name of Frank Abagnale, who Abagnale was a kid from New York City whose parents were divorced when he was 16. And he used this event of their divorce as kind of a springboard in his life to become this mastermind uh person who dealt in in, uh, forgery and fraud. He started out kind of just dabbling in bad checks and writing bad checks, opening false accounts. One thing he even did was like going to the bank and taking a handful of the blank deposit slips and writing his own account number on them and just putting them back in the thing, you know, the, the starting point, I guess. Then later he masqueraded as a Pan Am pilot and logged over one million miles. Um, just deadheading, which is kind of riding from one place to the next, not actually flying the plane, but riding as an employee of the plane. In one of his more elaborate schemes, he masqueraded as a supervising physician at a hospital. A friend in his apartment complex was an actual doctor, and they said that they needed a supervising physician for this late shift, and so, of course, uh, Frank applied for the physician and got, got it, which is strange. But he, he was able to forge his degree from Harvard and, Harvard and all these other things. He basically wrote it out until a nurse came and told him that they needed his help because a baby had been born blue, and he, he had no idea what that was. And the baby almost suffocated and, uh, because they needed a real doctor there. Well, Frank didn't know anything about that, and so it actually the baby almost died, and this caused him to move on. Uh, he did have a shred of, of morality, but he moved on then to impersonate a lawyer and other things, and eventually he was his uh, all of his life of lies kind of toppled in on him, and he ended up serving time in several countries before coming back to the U.S. Our text today features another con artist by the name of Simon, who was a local conjurer or magician in some town in Samaria. In our story, you see this real clash between the falsehood of Simon and the truth that the apostles bring in as they come into town. At stake were the souls of those poor Samaritan people there who had been hoodwinked by this con man 
Simon, this story is helpful for us on many fronts, and I think we could go a lot of different directions of this text, honestly. But after some reading of it and working through it, I've decided to focus on the nature or on the faith of Simon and the nature of what true faith looks like. Normally, I think, as you guys have probably figured out, I focus more on the falling condition in the text that the, that something about our own hearts and look, I maybe would look here at Simon's love of money, his lack of authenticity, how it reflects our own and what we should do about that, how we should run to Jesus. However, because of the improper teaching of this passage that has been brought to my attention as of late, because of the need for more teaching on repentance and conversion, I have decided to use this text to teach on the doctrine of repentance and conversion. This is obviously a very vital doctrine for the church, one that is more and more thrown to the wayside. It's at the very heart and soul of who we are as believers. Our conversion is who we are. Repentance is what we do. Conversion teaches us that we are more sinful than we ever could have imagined. Repentance repentance teaches us then how to deal with that sin. And so my argument from the text is that we see neither of those things from this man, Simon. We'll look at the text with three points. The need for repentance, the character of conversion, and the call then for true repentance. With that, let's look at the text. Uh, Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 4. Please stand with me as we read from God's Word. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 4 through verse 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of, to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs of what he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because, for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, and, his, and, and he, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and about the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the hands on the apostle, or laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you have thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. 
Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel. So many villages are too many villages of the Samaritans. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So before we look at Simon, I want to bring attention to what's going on in the church at this time there, looking at those first few verses of chapter 8. Remember uh, what we talked about last week with this, the persecution that was going on. This caused the church to scatter, and basically all of the believers were scattered to the, to the reaches, uh, to the far reaches, were hiding from the authorities at the time. And remember, Paul was, was chasing them as well. And so here... We have them being scattered, and wherever they go, they're preaching the word. So Philip, one of those Hellenistic deacons that we learned about in chapter 6, preached Jesus in Samaria as a result of being scattered to there. So what you would expect, particularly as we've read through this book, when the word of God has been preached, people were saved. The sick were healed, the lame were made to walk, demons were cast out, and then... In verse 8, it says that there was much joy in the city. And I want to bring out to this, before we get into the meat of the text, that this joy is the character of the gospel. When we preach the gospel, there isn't necessarily going to be these mass healings and demon exorcisms. The apostles are gone. These sorts of things are gone with them. But that doesn't mean that when there is true conversion, there isn't massive joy associated with it. True conversion takes all of life's difficulties and puts them into perspective. It doesn't remove them. We are in this world, so we deal with the difficulties of this world, but it puts them in perspective. It's not that we have been suddenly delivered from the world, but we have come to understand that the world is not our end. And that is a big deal. If we ever believe that our reward is here, then we get stuck here in our hearts and our minds. And that's not a good thing for the believer. I think Simon more and more demonstrates this in this text. And that brings us to the next, or the first point, the need for repentance. So look with me starting at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. And so as I'm reading this, I want you to kind of look at this, this flip-flop that happens with the people there of Samaria. Simon had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from least to the greatest, saying the man, or this man is the power of God and is called great. But they paid attention to him for a long time, and he, and he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed or when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself was believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And so notice this progression. Simon is a magician. He's in the town doing his um, magic show or whatever he's doing. 
the people are essentially worshiping him. That's what's going on. <clears throat> they see him as this God, as, as someone who's doing these great things. And they're worshiping him. The apostles, or Philip in this case, come to town and they preach the true God. They preach the actual truth. They see him doing the actual works of God. And they are converted and they worship the true God, Jesus Christ. And Simon is amazed at this point. He sees the amazement of the people shift and therefore he's amazed. All of, all of the focus, all the attention has shifted to the true God of the Bible and not to Simon anymore. And that's caused him to be amazed. There's this shift. The people were amazed at Simon, but when the truth of God came in, it was Simon who was actually amazed. We're told that Simon believed that he was baptized with many others in this Samaritan town. So what do we do with this? We have to take it at face value, right? First, we have to remember that the call to believe and the call to repentance go hand in hand, 100%. Look with me at the book of Mark quickly. We're doing some flipping around today, so keep your hands and keep a finger or bookmark and axe, obviously, but we're going to be looking around in the New Testament. The book of Mark, chapter 1. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And I think it's important for us to see this is, the, this is the word that Jesus preached as he went around. And so then this is going to be the word that the apostles preached as they went around. Verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled, meaning all the time, all time, essentially, has been looking forward to this moment. The whole of the Old Testament, every bit of it, was basically hoping and waiting. The shadows and types of the Old Testament were all desiring fulfillment because they were, in essence, inadequate for the tasks that they were asked to do. The sheep's and the goats that were killed on the altar actually did not forgive sins. They just pointed forward to the time when they would be forgiven. And so what is Jesus saying? Now the kingdom of God is at hand. Now time has been fulfilled. And he's preaching this message. And what is the text of this message? Repent and believe in the gospel. And so with this, this entering in of this new covenant, there comes this new call. Repent and believe. Repent, turn from your sins, and turn to God. Repentance happens because God is first working on the heart of the believer, showing them their sin. The need for repentance is revealed to this new creature who looks at himself and says, I don't measure up. The unbeliever is unable to do that. The unbeliever is able to, unable to see their sin in light of the holiness of God. The believer sees that immediately and then repents of it. So consider Simon. He comes to this realization. 
that he's not God. He thinks he is. He's come face to face with the truth. He sees himself against the majesty of God, realizes his need to be cleansed. That cleansing comes from the work of Christ, but that realization producing repentance in the life of a believer. Even though Simon's sin of sorcery demanded a death penalty in the Old Testament, Jesus takes the death penalty for those who are his, the one that we all deserve. And so the real question then, is Simon really his? And that brings us to the character of conversion. Look with me at verses 14 through 17 of Acts 8. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who had came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for they had not it had or he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So first let's understand what's going on here. As a believer we have the Holy Spirit living in us not because of some experience that we had or, or some emotional drumming up of the, of the Spirit in our souls or, or something like that. And many times it's what's preached in churches. There's nothing ourselves, not, someone, not that someone did for us. The Spirit enters the life of a believer. We have the Holy Spirit because of the blessing that is promised to all believers. The Spirit is the blessing of the new covenant. We have it because... It is promised. Jesus told us that. We don't have to wait on some special blessing or some special anointing. There is not an amount of the Spirit that you can have. You don't have like, well, I'm, I feel low in the Spirit today. No, the Spirit is 100% or 0%. You either have it or you don't. So we have to look at this similar to something that happened at Pentecost. When the day the Spirit rushed in and, and there was this, this happening... There were this uh, lots of events going on where the apostles were speaking in tongues, and all these different nations heard their, heard the gospel in their own language. This is this is an extraordinary event. This is not the ordinary. These believers received the gifts of the Spirit at the same time that the apostles laid their hands on them. The Spirit comes into the believer through the work of Christ. This situation is not a normal situation. This is an Acts thing with the apostles. There, we don't have the apostles anymore. This is important because this is what Simon grabs a hold of. He sees the apostles bestowing the gifts on the people. And he wants that kind of power. He says so. Why? Because if you have the authority to cause others to do signs and wonders, if you have the authority to make others have a a little shred of power, then that gives you the ultimate power, does it not? Simon saw this as a derivative of the apostles, not of the God of the apostles. And that was his problem. And he wanted it. He wanted sway over the people again. He wanted to be back in that place of, I am the most powerful. And so he offered money for it. He said, here, here's some money. Let me have this kind of power and authority that you have. And so the question for us, and in dealing with this passage in this way, is was Simon converted back in 13? And then we have to ask, well, what does true conversion look like? 
Well, to be sure, we are told over and over again in Scripture that one need only do what to be called a child of God? Believe. Just quote a few verses. Call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Repent and believe. If you believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. We have been given the right to be called children of God. But what does this salvation look like? And I think that's very important to understand. What does being saved mean? Well, turn with, turn with me to 2 Peter. Interesting that Peter would write on this uh, as he was one of the people there. He was the one that ultimately rebuked Simon. 2 Peter chapter 1. All right, and I'm going to read this section, Second uh, Peter chapter one verses three through eleven, and I'm going to read through this section. And what I want you to pay attention to: What does salvation look like? We're going to answer that question from this text. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is, a, that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, Godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let's walk through this together. The power of Jesus has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is, in Christ, we have the power to act like Christians. Whereas before Christ, we had the power to act like enemies of God only. And so that has been a distinct shift for those of us who know Christ. There was a real conversion. You know, this word means something. It means that we are changed from one state into another state. In Christ, there is a struggle to live like an enemy and to live like a child of God. If you're not in Christ, that struggle is not in you. You just don't care. You may feel the need to be a good person, but only because it benefits you. The believer feels the need to do good things because it brings glory to the Lord. 
It's what the, the Heidelberg, how the Heidelberg defined good works. They're not of ourselves. They are for the Lord. And so because of this, the salvation, and because of the salvation that we have, what does Peter tell us? We should make every effort then to supplement our faith, this thing that has been given to us, freely given this gift of faith that we in turn place back to him. We should supplement this with virtue. And he spells out what that looks like in a series of steps. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and he goes on. This is what that virtue looks like. So in Christ, he has made every effort to ensure that our salvation, or he has made every effort to ensure our salvation. He did all the work for our salvation. Now, what we, what must we do, according to this text, make every effort to act like that is true. If we don't, what happens? Verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. What does that mean? All the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. We must make these things sure. Our calling and election, think about these words. What is our calling? Our calling is because we were called by somebody. Our election, what is that? We were elected. We were chosen by somebody. These are not choices that have been made by us. We were called by the Spirit. We were elected by the Spirit. So then, let us act like that is true. That's what Peter's calling us to do. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 13 verses of that chapter because I think it's important again for us to get this, to get the thrust of what's going on here. Paul is saying the same thing that Peter was just saying. He's just going to say it in a different way. Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying the same thing. Then do these things if this is true. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. For being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out 
your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What's going on here? Paul says, do nothing out of selfish selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourself. And then he shows us what that looks like in Christ. The ultimate example of that. And then he says, therefore, do this. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Is he saying that we have to earn our salvation? No, not at all. He's saying, work that out. Work this out for yourself because God is working in you. What is that work? So that you'll do his will. That you'll do the things that please him. And I think that brings up an an important point. Is it possible for the unbeliever to dis, or for the believer to displease God? Yes. Is it possible for one of your children to displease you? Yes. Does that break the relationship that you have with them? No. Think about some of the stories in scripture. We could just go on and on. David in the Old Testament with Bathsheba. Consider Peter in the Gospels denying Jesus three times where he's pleasing to the Father. No. Does this displeasure make him turn from us? No. How long do we plan on acting like we aren't saved? So look at Simon again. He believed and he was baptizing, baptized, demonstrating outwardly that he believed. He followed the apostles, offered to buy their power so that he again could hold sway over the people. He showed just the opposite, the opposite thing which he had once shown outwardly. If he was a true believer, how would he act? He should continue to work this out. He should continue this battle, which this may have been a battle for him. But he should turn from this sin and repentance, showing his conversion. God fully intends to save every child that is his, but every child that is his will act like one of his children. Simply saying some prayer when you were a kid and never again considering your salvation does nothing for you. Prayers do not save. Jesus does. Belief does not save. Jesus does. Baptism doesn't save. Jesus does. People whom Jesus saves will act like that thing happened. They will always be consumed with acting like that. Not that they're always doing it by any means. Not that they're always going to act like that. Not that they're perfect. But they will always be consumed by that. The Spirit will not allow anything else. So much so that they'll noticeably be working on that all the time. It will consume them. Having faith in your baptism date or the date that you walked down to the altar and wrote in your Bible is faith in the wrong thing. Our faith shouldn't be placed in something that we did, but in the one who did something for us. We should make an important distinction here too, I think, that's very important, particularly to a Reformed group. Simply saying, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, all right, I'm a horrible person, can be a way that we cover up this lack of true conversion and repentance in our lives. I think it happens a lot, particularly in Reformed camps. We wear our former depravity like a medal. 
We love talking about how dirty our own belly buttons are. They even pretend they're still depraved. Saying something like, I'm a bad person. As if that shows humility or authenticity. But in reality, it just is an appearance of these things. We know what appearances are. True humility and authenticity does not draw attention to itself at all. Like Simon, it's easy to take something that is good, like the works of the Spirit, and use them for personal gain. So we have to be careful there too. And that brings us to the next point, the call of true repentance. Look with me at verses 20 through 23. But Peter said to him, Make your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So Peter rebukes Simon here rightly. Look at the nature of this rebuke. He brings out the true heart issue. It's all about money and fame for him. Something that Simon once had, he saw this as a meal ticket to get that, to get that going again, even while the apostles were there. He looked at the soul of Simon as only an apostle could do, and he finds it wanting. Then he quotes from Deuteronomy 29, speaking of this gall of bitterness, which not only infects the person, but everyone around them, which is indicative of the way Simon had been living. And in many places in Scripture, you see this. Believers are warned of this type of deceptive person. He calls him to repent, to turn from this wickedness, so that the Lord would forgive him. Calls him to repent. And then Simon, what does he do? Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Who is he praying? He's praying for, he's praying a prayer of protection. Please, please protect me. Uh, the apostles apparently have the authority to cause God to do that as well. He's not praying to the Lord. What is repentance? Peter calls him to repent. Repent, turn from your sin, turn to the Lord. True repentance does that, does it not? It turns to the Lord. Simon turns to the apostles and say, please, don't let him kill me. Don't let him hurt me. Not by praying to the Lord, who is the only one who can offer forgiveness, but he's praying out of fear. The kind of fear that causes a mouse to scurry away when the light comes on. The kind of fear that causes a man and woman to hide in the garden from the one who created the garden. We saw this back in Genesis 3. We continue to see it all the way through the rest of Scripture. Now, we don't know the rest of Simon's story, as far as the book of Acts is concerned. Anyway, this is all we hear from him. But church history teaches us much about what this man, Simon Magus, as he came to be known, put on. From this point forward, he rose up against the church. And by many accounts, he became the leader of this anti-gospel anti-Christ movement called Gnosticism. He continued there in Samaria where he led many astray. You can read through the works of Justin Martyr. According to him, he became recognized by the Samaritans as a god. He got his wish, which set him in opposition to the only true God and is not a place that you want to be. Granted, church history has no authority over us. 
the writings of the church fathers have no authority over us, but it would be hard for us to deny the historical accounts without throwing out all the church fathers, Justin, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, among others, all of them who say this man, Simon Magus, who we meet here in Acts 8, was really bad for the church and was anti-Christ, anti-gospel all the way. So what was wrong with Simon? He never repented. He never believed. He never knew Jesus. Jesus never knew him. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. This is a famous verse, but I want you to hear this, and I think especially you young people need to hear this. This is important because Simon demonstrated everything that we might look at and we might see and just looking across the room at someone like this. He was baptized, was he not? He said he believed, did he not? Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, this is our Lord Jesus talking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? Looks like Simon wanted to do. Looks like Philip even. We could name a lot of people who did these things. What's the difference? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the difference? We'll continue on. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Hears these words of mine and then does them. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew, beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Notice what Jesus is saying. Did we not do these great things? Did we not do these great works? Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. What does this mean? You built your house on the sand. You aren't doing the words that he commanded. You're not doing the things that he's asked. Your house will crumble, and in that day, you will wish that it had only been ocean waves that caused it to crumble. Instead, it will be the judgment of an angry God that will not abide your unrepentant and unbelieving heart. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Then, work out that salvation every day, lest you be shown to be a con man like Simon. Every con man to the gospel has only one fate, an eternity of punishment and suffering. For those who do this, for those whom Jesus has saved, who they continue to work out their salvation, they will inherit eternal life, which was purchased for them not by their own goodness, 
not by their own working out of their salvation, but by the work of Jesus Christ only. So in conclusion, let this be a warning, I think, brothers and sisters, to us, this story. Let me encourage you again to read Second Peter 1. What does it mean to work out your calling and election? I think it's very important for us to understand that. We can talk about it if you guys want to uh, during our Sunday school time. It's important. And I think it's especially for you younger people. It's normal for kids to ride on the faith of their parents. But your faith is your own. If you claim to be a believer, then Christ has given you that faith. What are you going to do with it? Does Jesus know you? This isn't to scare you, but if you aren't thinking about your salvation, often it should give you pause. Brothers and sisters, let us continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let us supplement our faith with virtue that we might make our calling and election sure that the world then might know that Jesus is Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, this is difficult. Um, because we do want to rest on our, on our laurels or on our own laurels, not on yours. We want to look at the things that we've done and kind of collect them and stop working out on our salvation. We want to stop doing the things that you've told us to do. But Lord, help us, strengthen us, encourage us to continue to do this, that we might show your promises to be true that we might show the world that you are the only true God, that they would call upon you and be saved. It's in your name we pray. Amen.